Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Unmasking Autism with AFO. I am your host, Carly Marissa Dummett. This podcast is presented by the Autism Foundation of Oklahoma and funded by the Oklahoma State Department of Health. For those who don't know, the Autism Foundation of Oklahoma strives to improve the lives of Oklahomans with autism across the lifespan. Before we jump in, I would just like to say that this podcast will discuss autism, suicide, mental health and wellness, among other topics, with autistic individuals and different professionals, with the goal of unmasking stereotypes, increasing awareness, advocating for mental health and wellness, and attempting to shatter the stigmas of these topics through conversation and personal experience. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Unmasking Autism with AFO. I am your host, Carly Marissa Dummett, and I have a very special guest with me today, my friend and awesome colleague. I'm so glad we will sit down and speak with them. Gail Hahn, hello. Hello. Um, Would you mind just introducing yourself and telling everyone a bit about you? Sure. Um, Hi, I'm Gail Hahn. As Carly said, I use they them pronouns. Um, I work in public health and do a lot of research related to autism and disabilities and sexual health. Um, Outside of that, I'm an autistic person. I have a lot of other disabilities, including things like learning disabilities and PTSD. Um, I'm a trans person, I'm a queer person, and I'm excited to be here. (laughs) I'm very excited to have you, and it is so nice to see you. It has been a while. Um, All right, so we're gonna just jump right in. Um, So first question is uh, based on your work and personal experiences. Why is it that you think autistic people are at such high risk of dying by suicide? There's a lot of reasons, I think. Um, Autistic people are statistically way more likely to experience abuse and experience trauma. Um, Things like emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse and assault. Um, And autistic people also interpret traumatic experiences differently. Um, Sometimes people have hyposensitivity to their environment and their experience. Sometimes people have hypersensitivity. And so that can make these traumatic events seem more intense or it can make them seem less intense, which can sometimes cause them to go on for longer than maybe they should. Um, Autistic people, I think like a lot of marginalized groups, um, experience a lot of discrimination in both big and small ways. And that can be from things like peer bullying to things like being um, discriminated in workplaces or by healthcare providers. Um, I think autistic people also uh, from, you know, the moment they're born are placed into a world that was largely not made for them and are then expected to go against their innate nature or way of being and try and mask and be a part of this world that isn't for them. And that is so incredibly hard. And also it's tough to feel like your innate self is inherently wrong. And I think lastly, there's a lot of intersectionality with autistic people and other marginalized groups who are also at high risk of suicide. I mean, as a transgender and queer person, there's a lot of autistic trans and queer Mm -hmm. people. Um, And both of these groups experience increased discrimination, especially in healthcare and employment and school settings. Um, And so these things just build on each other. And so... 
it's just a lot there. No, yeah, no, yeah. It, it is a lot, you know, and I don't know how you feel, but I really resonate with the just inherent feeling like inherently like who you are is wrong. And I don't think enough uh, neurotypical people are aware of how autistic people and also like you said like other marginalized groups like it is it's a very hard thing every single day to like learn to eventually be okay with the fact that hey who I am on like my natural instinctual level is not how this world is programmed and instead of letting it make me depressed and suicidal I have to figure out a way to cope with it and try to thrive in a world that's literally not built for you. Like, um, it's hard. (laughs) Um, okay. And so based on research, the pandemic especially has increased the suicide rate. So, um, can you talk a little bit about the autistic community and maybe why there's a rise in that area? Yeah, I think, Again, there's probably a lot there. I know that for everyone and probably it impacted autistic people more, you know, our our routines were just severely abruptly messed up <laughs> and that's so hard to adapt to. And everyone felt this increased social isolation, um, this increased lack of resources. Um, and also I think just the hopefulness for the future sometimes can be really stark when experiencing such a large global crisis. Um, But for autistic people specifically, I just think everything that folks struggle with on a daily basis was just amplified during the pandemic and it was just really hard to recover from that. And I, I know personally, a lot of the things that I've really worked to learn how to do that are innately really hard for me, like I don't know, like driving, I guess is an example. During the pandemic, I wasn't doing those things as much. And so then there was almost kind of like this skill regression. And then I had to relearn how to do things that I once had built up coping mechanisms for. Um, And so that was really hard too. So there's just a lot going on. Yeah, no, no, that's that's, that's true. It it was a a huge thing. Um, So let's talk about some other warning signs. Like, for example, masking. Mm -hmm. Um, I recently attended a talk from, like, a virtual talk with this woman from the Lori Center for Autism, and she really dug into, uh, or she sent, like, out a study, but a lot of people who are aware of the studies and, you know, language Mm -hmm. out there, masking is not good you know it's something we have to do but it's not good for us and it's not good for your mental health um so can you just talk more about that from like a i don't know professional (laughs) (laughs) masking is so hard i there was this advocate who i really admire who talked about like quote who taught you to mask because i think some people learn how to mask from like peers or family members as like a coping mechanism where they have to learn how to mask in order to not be bullied or to be included. And it's just like this expectation. But then sometimes almost from like a therapeutic approach, people are taught how to mask so that way they can um, obtain these social expectations. Um, And both I think are harmful in different ways. And masking just takes a lot of energy. And I think it builds on that idea of like your innate way of being is inherently wrong Um, and so that's I think what causes a lot of this mental health strife is this like constant 
perpetual internal battle 24 seven. Um, yeah. No, it's so true. Um, and you know, as with lots of things, it seems like illnesses and psychological, you know, issues, um, the Lori Center for Autism, they had posted a study that went more into masking and it was saying how women, um, or, you know, women identifying Mm -hmm. people as well, like masking for them is even more, uh, detrimental to their mental health because it's like and like women are already you know uh, I mean both sexes all people you know it's like society for thousands of years have been like one no you're this and you're this and you have to act like this you have to act like this and I thought it was interesting because it's like you know um the stereotypical viewpoint of what a woman is is so not thinking of the correct word but you know what I mean like it's like you know I don't know. I I don't want to get too too ridiculous sounding, um, but I don't know. I just thought that was interesting because it's like you know there's pressure on people to be societally what you know is put upon you, and then an autistic person, woman or woman identifying, and then it's like so they're trying to fit into what society says a woman is, and then you're mm-hmm. autistic on top of that, and then you're masking, and I just thought that was strange. I was like. All right, so it's even worse for those people because it's like there has so much on it. And um, I don't know how you are. For me, um, like that internal battle, I also feel like sometimes masking when I'm not or when I'm like alone and trying to like get back to center, Mm -hmm. sometimes it messes with my sense of identity because I'm like, well, who... Who am I? Just like inherently, it's almost yeah. like masking for so much, so long has made me feel like my sense of identity shifts all of the time because it's unstable, because I'm constantly trying to be perceived correctly by other people. Do you ever yeah. feel like that? Oh my gosh, absolutely. <laughs> it's so funny you mentioned, I guess, just like womanhood as a part of it too. I remember when I was a kid, I was like obsessed with magazines, like, Seventeen magazine or people and I would like take every single fashion tip and like make almost like data sets with them trying to figure out like how to be a person and I would like inventory my entire closet and like come up with outfits based on the magazines and I would like keep track of them so I wouldn't repeat a certain amount in a certain day and it was like so much effort and I don't again I don't even know if like it was something I cared about but it was just something that I felt so compelled to do and now as an adult where I don't do that, it's, it is really hard to, I don't know. I think I feel that pressure a lot at work. I think I mask the most in like the professional capacity where I'm pretty much mostly work with people who aren't autistic mm-hmm. and the expectation is to behave a certain way and monitor your body a certain way and wear certain clothing and work certain hours and do certain things. And it's so hard to even if I am like allowed to be myself to do it because that's just not the normal. Mm -hmm. And I like don't even know how to be myself at a certain point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's, I feel like I am the most myself when I am completely alone. Like 
Yeah. No one else is around me. I'm all by my, well, maybe my animals, but you know, they're <laughs> never judging me. So like, it's nice to know I'm never being judged. All they do is love me. But yeah, like, and then, I don't know. It is, it's very fascinating. And I could literally talk uh, for hours about that. But so let's talk about how family, friends, and professionals can help someone who is autistic and having suicidal thoughts, feelings, or ideations, and some warning shots warning signs, warning signs that they may be showing. Um, like how, you know, uh, many professionals can sometimes cause unintentional harm from lack of knowledge and understanding. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, I guess just talking about support first, warning signs second, maybe. Um, I think it's, it's kind of like that Taylor Swift song of like, <laughs> where I think people and their personhood and their identity need to be celebrated as opposed to just like tolerated. Um, and like, I think affirming anyone's identity or sense of self is so important as like not only being like, okay, you can exist in this space and I won't like kick you out of my house or something, but to really be proud of who they are. I think just being autistic is something to be proud of because there is this innate struggle that is so hard. Um, I think when you have a disability like autism, like I have had disabilities my entire life and I've known I was disabled since I was like five or six and it innately puts you in these systems that are based on segregation and are based on um, othering and that's so innately hard to break out of. And so I think just acknowledging that if someone is autistic in your life or in your waiting room or is your autistic patient, that like that is something to be proud of them for because it like them just being there is like a triumph <laughs> in some ways. Um, and I think also just another really important thing is to providers and parents and advocates can like presume competence I think my most harmful um, like provider interactions especially, um, I had one just recently the other day where I saw a psychiatrist for my mental health and once I told them my diagnosis, it was like a flip switched in their brain and suddenly for the next like 40 minutes they were talking to me like I was five years old and they it stopped being a conversation between adults and it started being like an authoritarian figure like lecturing a child about what to do and how they're being wrong and how they're being bad. and these things are unacceptable and the, and it just, it was bizarre to be talked to like that as someone who is a professional and has all these things. And, yeah. and I think I was talked to like that a lot when I was like a kid in special education classes, but then, you know, 20 years later to be talked to like that again, it's, I think, so harmful. Um, and so I think just assuming that even if someone doesn't talk or isn't making eye contact with you or whatever, that they're still competent in treating adults like adults mm -hmm. is so important. Um, but I guess for warning signs, I think whenever I've been the most suicidal or having the hardest time, like my struggles are amplified. Like I sometimes have had like self-injurious stimming or stuff. And when my mental health is the worst, that's the worst. Or I've had a lot of like issues with food, with like having a limited diet or only eating certain foods. And like my diet gets super limited whenever I'm most stressed, that type of thing. Um, and I think 
you know, like things that a lot of people struggle with. Like I am less communicative when I'm really depressed. I'm less likely to reach out to folks and check in. I'm less likely to respond to messages. Um, a lot of stuff like that. Oh yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Same. Yeah, you know, I I feel like when I have a depressive episode, I vacillate between I'm not hungry at all, or I will overeat because mm-hmm. I'm like eating all my emotions. Yeah, you know. I really like that too. Um, and so the psychiatrist that you were just talking about, was that your first time seeing them? It was, okay. yeah. And I am never going back there, okay. you know? So that's what I wanted. <laughs> Which is sad. Yes, but I, I guess that's something I personally think more people should look at because I also have been in and out of therapy mm-hmm. and seen psychiatrists since I was a very small child. And um, someone explained to me when I was in my 20s that when you are shopping around Mm -hmm. for the right therapist or shrink, like look at it like dating. I feel like more people should know that in my opinion. Like you don't have to talk to someone just because they're there and they're willing to talk to you. You should find a provider that is willing to acknowledge you, not infantilize you, not talk down to you. I had a therapist um, who knew nothing about autism, Mm -hmm. and so since they knew nothing about autism, and autism in females is different than it is in males, a lot of times they kept trying to tell me that I didn't have autism, I had borderline. And I was like, Mm -hmm. "Mm, no, I do not, I have autism. And then eventually, I was with them for too long. That's what I mean, (laughs) I should have broken up. But, you know, I stayed with them for an extended period of time and then they educated themselves on autism. And then eventually they came back and like, oh my God, you know what, you're so sorry. Or I'm so sorry, you don't, I I was wrong. Mm -hmm. And it was frustrating for me because it was like, I was having to fight to be like, no, when really a lack of education on their part. They didn't know any better. And so they were only working within their parameters. And so like, what is something from your opinion, like if there's a professional out there who hasn't been trained in autism or they want to be able to serve autistic individuals better, what can they do to increase their professional tool belt? Absolutely. Well, I think first would just be to do some self-education. I mean, if you are someone who hasn't had an autistic client yet, like you will at some point. And if you already have some and you still aren't educated, like the time is now to learn about autism in all populations, you know, all age ranges, including adults, including teens, all genders, um, and to learn about the kind of like co-occurring things that autistic people experience that might be seeking your care for. I think um, mental health and autism like are co-occurring all the time various mental health conditions but there's also a lot of physiological health conditions that co-occur with autism um so just knowing as a provider that like this is a population that will likely be um part of these conditions if you treat certain things is like really important i think Mm -hmm. yeah and um in terms of the um intersectionality and the data that shows that autistic people and the 2S LGBT community really overlap. I had a guest on a few weeks ago Mm -hmm. um, and she was saying how, I think she said 40%, but when it comes to um, that community, just asking and like like you said, accepting Mm -hmm. a person for who they are and like, for example, pronouns, that's what what the statistic was. 
respecting someone enough to use the pronouns that they tell you they identify with reduces oh the risk of suicide by 40%. Yeah, I don't doubt that at all. I, I like some of my worst healthcare experiences, especially when seeking things like gynecological health have been with providers where I explicitly tell them multiple times what my pronouns are and they still during the exam just like ignore it and say the wrong thing or say the wrong name. And that's been like by far the most harmful to my mental health. And if they just like made that tiny baby change, it would just like mean everything. So I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. Oh, well, it wasn't me, it was her. But yeah. I, was, I, would, I mean, 40%, that's such a large number. And I was yeah. like, wow, like one, like one small thing that other people can do can, to accommodate and just yeah. be kind and show respect, you know? And um, like, I wanna thank you, like, you know, when we first met, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, Hey girl, it was just it was like a natural part of my vocabulary. And you know, you helped me to really be mindful of the fact that I need to adjust my vocabulary because I didn't want to seem rude or mm -hmm. disrespectful. And you know, I've just always really appreciated Aww. that from you because you really just meeting you has helped me open up my own mind and become a better person and expand my own um, knowledge base. And I just, I think it's so great. Aww, I just, I'm really I think so you're happy great. <laughs> you're here. I really am. Um, so let's talk about wellness um, okay. for a second. So what are some things that you do to take mm -hmm. care of yourself and show yourself wellness and how do you practice it? Yeah, I, well, I think for mental health, the number one, by far, absolute best thing I've done for my mental health is um, just like be myself and to be brave enough to transition. I think by far that is like the kindest, bravest thing I've ever done for my mental health. Like I can't even begin to describe how much it's improved my well-being. Um, so that's number one. <laughs> uh, and I think it's really interesting because before I decided to start transitioning, um, and my mental health was by far the most unstable. I had providers kind of almost try to talk me out of it and say, you know, your mental health is so unstable right now. Maybe we should just like get that in check before adding hormones into the mix or something like that. And it's night and day, just like having affirming providers who say like, oh no, this is something that'll probably help you. <laughs> um, but I think outside of that is really things like journaling really helps me. Um, exercising really helps me being around animals really helps me like i'm obsessed with my dog the best honestly i take it back the best thing i've ever done for mental health is get a dog yeah. <laughs> my dog totally saved my life um being around my spouse and my close friends is really good for my mental health and physical health um i think those are the main ones yeah um for people who may be listening who are um, trying to find that courage within themselves to embrace who they truly are. What was, um, I don't know, like, I'm trying to figure out the best way to ask this, but like, was there like a specific situation or a time or something happened where you were like, you know what, I'm done. Like I'm done, you know, fighting it. This is yeah. who I am and I'm going forward in my life as me. No, there wasn't. It wasn't like, for me, it was so gradual. I think I've been really terrified to transition. I think um, I've been really afraid of losing family members and, you know, having bad experiences at work or at school or, you know, not knowing which bathroom to use, all that stuff. And I think that's stuff I'm still navigating. Um, 
And so I did it really gradually. And I think what I've learned is that with like each gradual, tiny incremental step, like things have only gotten better. Mm-hmm. And like each time I make this tiny baby step, I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe I waited so long to do that. Um, and so I think that's what has helped me is like, whether it's, you know, going by a new name or changing my pronouns or starting hormones, whatever it might be, like every time I've done it, I've been like, it's been like the second I do it literally, like this breath of fresh air where suddenly it feels like the weight of the world has dropped off my shoulders and I feel better. And I was like so scared to do it in the first place. It's so silly. Um, so I guess my advice to other people would be like, it's okay to go really slow and it's okay to like test the waters and the truth is, like, if you try something and you don't like it, you can always, like, stop or go back or say, never mind. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's yeah. part of life. And I think I was so afraid that, like, I couldn't do that. I couldn't just say, like, JK. Yeah. <laughs> but you can. <laughs> oh my gosh, no. Yeah, no, you can. Yeah. yeah. No, no it's, it's true. With most things, yeah, actually. Yeah, you really can. And so if something has the power to be that good, might as well just try it. Like, mm-hmm. really, if it has the power to like change your life so positively like just try it and if it doesn't work out just stop it's fine <laughs> yeah 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 no I love that. <laughs> JK I'm just kidding um I also I love your laugh I know I tell you this almost every time I see you but you literally you have the best laugh oh thank you um so <coughs> I haven't not every guest that I've had so far has been autistic so um if you don't mind uh, um I, do you want to talk about stereotypes Sure, I guess. Okay, yeah. So, um, what is your favorite stereotype about autism, and then your least favorite? Oh my gosh. Um, I don't know what my favorite one is. I, I mean, I guess, I, my, I guess, my actually, my favorite one is that like the Venn diagram of like trans people and neurodivergent people as a circle. Have you heard that? Mm-hmm. It's just like this, like saying that like so many autistic people are queer in some way. And I just, I do know so many queer autistic people and it's obviously, it's a stereotype. So that's not true for everyone, yeah, but yeah. like, it does make me laugh. <laughs> um, Cause like, I feel like every time I meet a new trans person, it's like a few seconds later, they're like, oh yeah, I'm autistic. Like, okay, it's, yeah. like I, I think out of the like five or six, trans mask people that I know they're all autistic okay so I don't I don't know I'm just saying it's a thick <laughs> okay no yeah no that's very true yeah um, I mean <laughs> the data is there the data is there. it really is <laughs> and so then what would be uh one of your least favorite um I guess probably just like autistic people don't feel empathy or like that they're not robotic I feel like I'm the most empathetic emotional person in the entire world I feel things all the time so deeply like nine million percent empathy I'm just constantly thinking about other people so I just feel like <laughs> too detrimental yeah me, yeah probably <laughs> And then if there was something you wish um, neurotypical people were more aware of about what it's like to live with autism um, that they might not know, what, what, you got anything? Wow, that's such a good question. I would like neurotypical people to know that making things better for autistic people helps everyone, including themselves. You know, if the world was more accommodating or, uh, you know, more 
based on like universal design, like everyone would benefit. You know, I think in my perfect world, everyone, regardless of whether they have a documented disability, can request any accommodation that they need at work or school or wherever. Um, and that's just like super normal. And it's just something everyone can do to like feel them their best. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess I would also just want neurotypical people to know that like they it's we live in this world that's really sad sometimes because it is so segregated like I was in segregated special education most of my life and like I think those systems cause segregation into adulthood whether it's like in special programs for people to work where they aren't necessarily working with people who don't have disabilities and like you know our worlds just become so separate and it hurts everyone because I think a lot of the neurotypical people who are my friends or loved ones like enjoy having me in their life and I think it's not just sad for autistic people to be excluded it's sad for neurotypical people because they're missing out on like excellent friendship and fun times yeah <laughs> um i agree with us yeah 100 percent. yeah that's right um no i think that that's great and i uh really appreciate you um Aww. being here today and talking from a personal and a professional yeah. point of view um it's so nice and i appreciate all your wisdom and insight <laughs> and you guys that's that's it we're that was so fast yeah um thank you so much and we'll see you next time thank you again for tuning in to unmasking autism with afo i'm your host carly marissa dummett thank you again to the oklahoma state department of health and for any information on our trainings or our events please visit www.autismfoundationok.org or follow us on social media platforms at Autism Foundation OK. As always, thank you so much and we'll see you next time.